you have your Bibles or Scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. Luke and chapter 20. We're going to camp out in verses 27 through 40 in our time together this morning. What was that? Did I do that? Okay. Well, then I don't care. Uh, Luke 20, 27 through 40. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. Luke 20, starting in verse 27. The Holy Spirit said through a doctor named Luke, there came to him, Jesus, some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstance, to choose one's way. These are the words of an Austrian Jewish psychoanalyst named Viktor Frankl, a man who was acutely acquainted with the need to make such choices in the midst of suffering and hardship. Now, you see, before Frankl was a psychoanalyst and an author, he was a prisoner in Nazi concentration camps, having spent three years in four different camps, the last one being Auschwitz. And after his, re- the, his release during the liberation of Europe, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in that book, he talks about four different kinds of ways people in death camps behaved in relation to hope, okay? Four different ways he noticed that people in hard times uh, behaved in relation to hope. So the first kind of person was the ones who would just, they would lose hope. And in turn, they would themselves become brutal people, okay? So they would respond to brutality by being cruel and brutal themselves. Even the seemingly nicest people, he found, could turn and become nasty. Then you had people, this is the second type of people, who would lose hope to the extent that they would just give up. They'd stop taking care of themselves altogether. He said, quote, usually this happened quite suddenly, the symptoms of which were 
familiar to us who had been in Auschwitz for a while, we all feared for this moment in our friends. Usually, it began one morning when the prisoners simply refused to get dressed or wash or go out to the parade grounds for inspection. No entreaties, no blows, no threats of any, had any effect. They just lay there. They had given up. Nothing bothered them anymore because they had no hope, quote, end quote. The third type of people were those who said, essentially, if I just survive, I could get all my hopes back. So they placed their hopes on getting out, right, and getting back to health and job and a family and professional achievements. They hoped that fortune and position in society would be restored to them eventually. So if they just survived, they could get all their hopes back. That was their hope, to get their hopes back. So after, but after the liberation uh, of uh, Europe, though, Frankel said many of them went home and found that those things were irretrievably gone. And, and uh, they, they went into deep depression for the rest of their lives. They couldn't get their hopes back. Their, their hopes had been shattered because it wasn't what they thought it would be, and they couldn't reclaim what they lost. Now, the fourth and final type of person was the smallest group of all. He said only a few of the prisoners were like this. Franco said that these people kept an inner strength that raised them above their outward fate. Well, what created that difference? He said those people had a hope beyond this life. They, they anchored themselves in a hope that neither suffering nor circumstances of, or death itself could destroy. They hoped for something beyond this world. And, and so even the worst of all circumstances was somehow more manageable because they looked at the now through the lens of the future. Do you see? So all four had a relation to hope, right, as all people do. Some lost hope and became mean and nasty. Some lost hope to the point that they ceased doing even the most routine daily activities. Some lost hope to the point that they ceased doing, uh, I just said that, some hope for restoration of material prosperity, to get back to life as it was. And when it happened, it wasn't at all what they thought it would be. But those who had hope in eternity, whose hope rested beyond this life, were able to endure even the worst circumstances that you could imagine all because of transcendent hope. Now, all of us have some relation to hope, don't we? There's something that you are currently hoping for or in, something that is bearing the weight of your hopes. And I wonder for you what it is. And I wonder, when things get hard in life, as they inevitably do, yes, if what you're hoping in is able to bear the weight of those difficult moments and seasons. Like Frankel shows us in The Man's Search for Meaning, only looking beyond this life can give you true and lasting hope in this one. But what Frankel may not have known is that there's only one place in which hope can be placed that will secure one's eternal future, and that is in the resurrection. And the text we're considering this morning centers on the resurrection and it comes about as a question from the Sadducees, who had no hope in the life after, and who we'll all tell you more about in a moment. But since the text centers on a question, let's do what we did last week, okay? And we'll ask four questions, which will serve as our four points, okay? And these are four questions we would do well to ask in our own hearts. But now, before we do that, let's briefly consider who are these Sadducee people, 
And what are they trying to do here? Okay, and then we'll go to our four questions. Now, the Sadducees were a group that was part of the Sanhedrin, who we considered a few weeks ago. And they were typically very wealthy, and they were sort of like blue bloods of the religious leaders. And they were also in cahoots with the Roman government. They also rejected oral tradition. They desired to preserve the status quo. And they held very closely to the books of Moses, but they rejected all other scriptures outside the first five books of the Bible. So they rejected all the prophets. Something that also set them apart was that they denied the existence of angels, and they didn't believe in the resurrection, which, of course, the latter is something Luke explicitly tells us, right, in verse 27. So since all of the other groups of religious leaders, as we've seen in this chapter, have tried and failed to trap and embarrass Jesus, the Sadducees try their hand at trapping Jesus by presenting a question that attempts to show how ludicrous the idea of resurrection is. And, that, and they do that by presenting this ridiculous test case, thinking that they have finally, at long last, ensnared Jesus. Now they really got him, right? And so they draw off of what's called Leverite marriage, which is the idea that if a man is married and dies before he could bear children, his brother would marry his widow, and they would have children in order to keep the name and the line of the deceased going, okay? So, the, so they say, a man died, and one of his brothers married the widow in accordance with this Leverite marriage, which they all knew about. But then the, then the brother dies without bearing children, so another brother marries her. Well, he what? He dies without bearing children, so... Another brother marries her, and on and on this goes until she gets to seven husbands, and they all die. Well, then tragedy strikes when she dies without having the seventh husband's children. One commentator said that you could tell this was a phony made-up case because no woman could survive seven husbands. He said, <laughs> he said she would have given up the ghost a long, long ago, right, before she got to number seven. Who could endure such things? In any case... The Sadducees want to know, whose wife will the woman be in the afterlife if there is resurrection, okay? This is their trap, okay? They think the resurrection is absurd because of this absurd scenario, and thus, there's no good answer, they think, to this question. But once again, Jesus is what? Smarter than they are, and his response shows them why they are faithless, why they have a small view of God and why they don't understand even the scriptures that they say they uphold. And we'll explore Jesus' response in our four questions. Let's start with number one. Question one, can God wreck your categories? Can God wreck your categories? What do we mean by this? Well, what grounds part of the Sadducees' misunderstanding of the resurrection is that they assume God cannot do something they don't understand. Do you see? They have God firmly in their little box, and they believe God can't do anything outside of what they've constructed. I mean, why do they think they've got Jesus trapped in this absurd question? Because they believe there can't be resurrection because God wouldn't know what to do with a case like this one. And since this case was impossible to navigate, there must be no resurrection. You see their line of thinking? So rather than thinking that God might do something beyond their comprehension in the resurrection at the end of the age, they simply conclude that there must be no resurrection. You see, 
Daryl Bach said, the dilemma does not lie in the doctrine of the resurrection, which Jesus firmly upholds. The dilemma lies in their refusal to recognize God's creative power to transform reality through resurrection. What they fail to realize, says James Edward, is God's power to create and restore life bursts the limits of both logic and imagination. So the Sadducees believe that there can't be a resurrection on the basis of their own ability to understand. They think that the age to come can only be just like this age. Heaven must, therefore, simply be an extension of this life, or must be essentially just like this world, something we'll discuss more in our second question here in a bit. But the problem of the Sadducees is a problem we humans seem to have constantly. And what's that problem? The problem of trying to box God in, of trying to create an image of God that we're comfortable with, of a God who never surprises us, challenges us, or disagrees with us, a God who cannot wreck all of our categories to pieces and remake them. You see this all the time with those who bring up objections to Christianity and say things like, I can't believe in a God who would, blank. And they fill in the blank with all sorts of stuff. They would have a problem with God allowing or doing or prohibiting or demanding that they think that they should be allowed to do. Tim Keller said, when we say, I can't believe in a God who would, blank, many times, in one way or another, ultimately, we're saying we don't really want a God beyond our comprehension. Or we can't fathom a God who would disagree with us. This is what it comes down to, right? Can God challenge us? Can he do and allow things we don't understand or approve of? Can God surprise us? Can God call you to do things that you, quite frankly, do not want to do? Can God call you to give up things and change your priorities for life? And again, when you read the Bible and you hear it proclaimed, and it doesn't surprise you or challenge you or confront you or convict you, I wonder, what Bible are you reading? Because either your heart has become so hard to it, or you conclude, God can't really mean that. So you dismiss the radical claims of the gospel, or you find ways around it, and what it's saying or calling you to be or do. We all have this tendency, yes, to try to box God in. And make him into something that we can get our hands around and completely understand. What kind of God is that, though? That's no God at all. It's just a deified version of ourselves. Think of Jesus draws off of Exodus. Let's think of an incident from Exodus. Why did the Israelites create a golden calf when they could literally look up and see the presence of the Lord on the mountain? Why do they do that? Why do they use the language of Yahweh worship to worship this cow? Because they could control something that they built. They could decide what the God that they created asked for and desired. They could mold it in any way they wanted, and they could call it Yahweh and say it brought them out of Egypt, even though they literally just made it themselves. That's the draw of deciding that God will be a God that we're comfortable with and are therefore never surprised by. After all, how can an idol surprise us? R.C. Sproul, drawing off that incident, said, The cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf and dumb and impotent. 
but at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. This was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. Now, the, the ways in which we could do this are seemingly endless. You realize this? It's just up to the creativity of people and how devoted they are to their sin and how unwilling they are to see God as creator and ruler who is far above us and that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Why do some professing Christians not give themselves to the local church but stay away from gatherings as a habit of life? Is it because the Bible says that involvement in the local church is optional? Of course not. It's because they just don't want to go. I just wish some people would just be honest and say, I don't go to church because I don't want to. And they just don't want to be accountable to anybody. So what do they say? I don't think God cares if I go to church. I don't think it's necessary to live the Christian life to go to church. Is that because God actually doesn't care? Or is it because you've decided he doesn't? See, now now we're asking the uncomfortable questions, aren't we? Why is it that we embrace things that are clearly sin in Scripture and then think that they're okay for us to do? Because we've decided God doesn't mind much. Well, why? Because we don't want to believe in a God who would tell us not to pursue our fallen feelings and desires. You see, I've seen and heard people say things like, God and I have an understanding, which I promise is a one-way agreement. And it isn't, isn't it an incredible coincidence that the understanding you have with God lines up with pursuing what you want to do or abstaining from what you don't want to do? What a coincidence, right? It's like that Babylon Bee article. You guys know Babylon Bee? This was written several years ago when it was actually funny. The title was, Everything Local Man Feels Led to Do He Coincidentally Really Likes. This is a satirical, satirical news story. It starts like this. Don Farmer, 43, reported Tuesday that he was recently led by God towards several things he really likes. And in fact, as a general rule, everything he feels spiritually moved to do, he coincidentally enjoys very much. That's a fake, cheeky news story, but all, like all good satire, it has much truth in it, doesn't it? God, can God lead you where you wouldn't choose to go? Can God challenge you? Is God constantly surprising you? When you think of God, is he beyond what you can understand? Is he transcendently awesome, or is he a tame God you can wrap your arms and mind around? Unless God can surprise and challenge us, we aren't thinking about serving or worshiping the true God. Perhaps, you know, one of the clearest examples of God being beyond comprehension is the doctrine of the Trinity, right? We know from Scripture that there is one God, yes. That there is one God, but that there are three persons in the Godhead who are distinct, yet one who are equal and eternal. How does that work? Well, it's beyond comprehension or human understanding. But what do we try to do? We try to come up with ways to explain the Trinity in ways we can understand. So we look at things around us in the world to compare the Trinity to. You know, the Trinity is like an apple, It's like water that can appear in three forms. The Trinity is like a three-leaf clover. The Trinity is like, you know, men's three-in-one body wash and shampoo and conditioner. The Trinity is like this or that. Every time we do that, though, we end up becoming accidental heretics. The Trinity is not like anything we can understand. And we should be okay with that. Can we be okay with the fact that the Godhead is beyond human wisdom 
logic and understanding? Or do we so desperately need to wrap our heads around it in order to embrace it? You know, there's a story that appeared in the Middle Ages about Augustine. It's, it's fascinating. It's unverifiable, though. It surely did not happen. But I think it illustrates an important point. The story goes that Augustine was in the middle of writing his work on the Trinity, and he was struggling with being able to put the greatness of God into words and explain such a complex theology. So he decided he'd take a break and he'd walk uh, on the beaches of the Mediterranean. So he's walking along the shore and he's contemplating the complexity and enormity of God, and he happened upon a child. And the child was using a seashell to dig a hole in the sand. And after the child dug a small hole in the sand, he went and he gathered some seawater with the shell. Then he returned to the hole he dug and put the water into it. Now, Augustine watched this happen several times. And finally, Augustine asked him, my boy, what are you doing? And the boy replied with a smile, well, I'm trying to bring the sea and fit it into this hole I dug. And Augustine said, but that's impossible, dear child. The hole cannot contain the sea. Obviously, the sea is too large and the hole is too small. And indeed, this is why you know it's fantastical, said the child. But I will sooner draw all the water from the sea and empty it into this hole than you will succeed in penetrating the mystery of the Holy Trinity with your limited understanding. And Augustine turned away in amazement when he looked, the child was gone. (laughs) A fantastical story, but it illustrates an important point. Augustine didn't give up, though, his pursuit of knowledge of God simply because he couldn't grasp it. Rather, the task of the Christian is to pursue knowledge of God, knowing that he is beyond our full comprehension and is therefore worthy of worship and devotion. We must approach him with humility, remembering always that we are the creature and he is the creator. We are the clay, he is we are the, the clay, he is the clay maker. The, the Sadducees were unwilling to see God as greater than they were able to understand. They couldn't see his creative powers beyond their imaginations. Well, what about you? Well, this ties into our second question, which is this. Question number two. How do you understand heaven and eternity? How do you understand heaven and eternity? See, the Sadducees' problem wasn't that they tried to put wasn't just that they tried to put God in a box. It was that they misunderstood what resurrection was. So we know they didn't believe in resurrection. In fact, they didn't believe in any afterlife to speak of, right? So when you died, they thought, you just died. You're just dead. No judgment or reward. But, says the Sadducees, let's say for the sake of argument there's a resurrection. Surely it's just like this world. Do you see? They... they, They think heaven must be much like this life. They presume that the world to come is essentially a materialistic extension of earthly life, including the married state. But see what Jesus does? He destroys their question immediately and easily. See, when he says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who attain to that age and the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Do you see what he does? He's saying that there are two ages, This one and the one to come, and that the one to come is sufficiently distinct reality from this one. The age to come is not simply a more glorious image of the present. It's distinct and different, and thus their question is irrelevant. The relationships change. There's no death. There's no reason for people to marry or be given to marriage. 
There's no procreation. So their question that was supposed to show the absurdity of the resurrection, the question that was supposed to trap Jesus is just moot. Jesus says that those who share in resurrection in the age to come will be like angels. Do you see that? What does that mean? It does not mean that we become angels, okay? Too many funerals I've been to have said that, okay? We do not become angels. What Jesus is doing is striking at another doctrine that the Sadducees are wrong about, which is angels. They don't believe in them at all. So Jesus is both affirming the existence of angels and saying that those who share in the resurrection are like angels in the sense that angels don't marry, right? Nor do they die, nor do they need things like food, which are needed to sustain mortal bodies. And since there's no marriage in the age to come, since relationships are different, then the dilemma of the multiple husbands is irrelevant. It just disappears. It seems, doesn't it, that the Sadducees' misunderstanding of the heavenly existence is one that persists today among many who believe in heaven in this way, okay? Many picture heaven as simply a more glorious version of earthly existence. They think it's just earth, but you can't die. That funeral and country music theology has ruined our thoughts about heaven. I'm sorry if you like country music. I'm about to go in on it, all right? What does country music theology tell us about heaven? That basically whatever you like doing on earth, you'll be doing it in heaven, right? And all the relationships you had on earth will continue unabated in the afterlife. Not only that, but all the good old boys will be there, right? As if heaven was an inerrant right, right? They believe in justification by death, right? Take, for example, Michael Hardy's 2021 award-winning hit, Give Heaven Some Hell. Okay, I'll read you the chorus. I hope you hit those gold streets on two wheels. If anybody starts singing this with me reading it, you are out of here, all right? <laughs> I hope you hit those gold streets on two wheels. I hope your mansion in the sky's got a 10-acre field with some mud and some hubs you can lock in. Make some thunder. Make them wonder how you got in. Hide your beer, hide your clear from the man upstairs, crank it loud, hold it down till I get there. And when I do, I hope you got some new stories to tell. Till then, give heaven some hell. You see, heaven is just 2.0, earth 2.0, right? But much to Hank Williams' chagrin, heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, okay? The idea in all this bad theology of heaven is this, okay? Heaven must be what I want it to be. If I like driving my old pickup truck on a dirt road with my loyal dog, surely I'll be doing that in heaven. If I like fishing with grandpa and sitting on the porch and drinking and hanging out with my friends, that must be what I'm doing up there. Now, this might be a silly example, okay? You might be thinking that's harmless music, but I've, I've been to enough funerals to know that many people really believe heaven is just an idealized version of earth. The age to come is going to be much like this age. Now, I'm not saying you should stop listening to country music, okay? I am, I am kind of saying that. But if you insist, <laughs> if you insist, don't draw your theology from it, okay? Let's not think of heaven in a way that we're most comfortable with. Let's not think of heaven in ways that are so small. This is the problem. That's too small, uh, why? Because it's, it's far more glorious than anything we can come up with in our finite imaginations. And we shouldn't be drawing our theology on anything but the Bible when it comes to heaven. 
Jesus says here, there will be no marriage, so relationships will not be the same as they are here. And that, you get kind of bummed out by that, but what he's saying is it'll be better. It'll be better. You and I both know that even the best relationships on earth are fraught with problems and imperfections. Therefore, the best of relationships on earth are merely a shadow, do you see, of what we will enjoy in fullness in the age to come. Everyone wants to know, well, I know these people I knew on earth when I'm in heaven. Perhaps, but, but not in the same way. It will be even better, you see, than you think. We won't be married to the ones we're married to on earth. And why? Because we, the people of God that compromises the church through the centuries, will be married to our true husband, Jesus Christ. All marriages on earth are thus pointing us, don't you see, to a more glorious one. All marriages on earth are imperfect, imperfect shadows pointing us to Jesus as the husband who died for his bride, the church. So, for example, I won't be married to Sila in the age to come, but my marriage on earth is meant to point me and others to the gospel of Jesus' sacrifice for his bride, the church. So I won't know Sila in the same way that I do now, but maybe she'll let me sit next to her in the new heavens and earth, right? So we're thinking too small. If what we hope for most in heaven is just more glorious existence of what we have on earth, it's too small. There's nothing wrong with longing for your lost loved ones to see them in eternity, so don't hear me say that. Even David stated that he would one day see the baby that he lost. But what I am saying is that our doctrine of heaven must come from nowhere but Scripture. And what does Scripture tell us is the most glorious aspect of heaven? What is it? that we should long for most of all. Why is heaven heaven at all? Because our triune God is there. Because the Father is there. Because Jesus is there. Because the Holy Spirit is there. All in their fullness with perfect fellowship with us. That's the best part of heaven. That's the part we should be talking about the most. That's what our hearts should be longing for. That's what we were designed for. John Piper asked this question years ago that I've shared with you before, but it bears asking in this discussion. He said, ask this in your heart, truly. If you could go to heaven with all your family and friends there, if you could be reunited with your loved ones, have all the food you loved and none of the pounds, see beautiful sunsets and have golf, beaches, mountains, fishing, or whatever you're into, but Jesus wasn't there, is it still heaven? Would you still want to go? Would you? I mean, are we missing that our views of heaven are like the Sadducees, simply a glorified version of our present reality? Are our views too small? Have we decentered our glorious Christ from the center of heavenly existence where he's simply something nice thrown into our desires for eternity? See, heaven is only heaven because Jesus is there. And the realities of heaven are more glorious than we could ever come up with. This is what Puritan Samuel Rutherford said, Oh my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be a heaven to me, for thou art all the heaven I want. Growing in the knowledge of God and putting before one another the beauties of, and glory of Christ should alter our heart's desires to where he is what we want most. Of all. And heaven's glory lies in the fact that we enjoy him in fullness. 
There's, there, now, there's one more thing that I have to mention before we go to our next question, okay? And it's that the heaven we ought to be longing for is not the disembodied intermediate state that we oftentimes picture, but is the new heavens and the new earth where we will be resurrected bodily like Jesus. Do you see? In other words, we should be looking far ahead to the age to come where rather than being these bodiless souls, we'll be reunited with our bodies, but in they will be glorified and incorruptible and are resurrected like Jesus' body was resurrected and glorified. And that is in part what Jesus' own resurrection secured, you see, and why it's so important. Jesus tells them there is no death, doesn't he? Well, why? Because in Jesus' own resurrection, death was defeated, and the curse was reversed, and his sacrifice on the cross was accepted and vindicated by the Father, assuring that those who are in Christ will taste death only once and never again. And this, my friend, is where we ought to ground all of our hopes. But now we have to ask our third question in light of all this, don't we? Here's question number three. Do you qualify for heaven? Do you qualify for heaven? In verse 35, Jesus talks about those who are worthy to attain the age to come. Do you see it? This means that not everyone will share in the resurrection unto life. Not everyone will be in new heavens and new earth. Some will die once, some will die twice. So who's worthy? Who qualifies? We know that no one in themselves qualifies, yes? Not, not, not one person has earned his way into heaven. All we've earned is the wages of our sin, which is what? Death. But Jesus says that some are worthy to attain the age to come. Who is that? Only those, verse 36, this is an important verse you might want to mark up, only those who are sons of God and are thus sons of the resurrection. Look at one of the reasons Jesus gives for why there is resurrection in verse 37. He goes back to the burning bush, doesn't he? Since the Sadducees only believe in the book of Moses, Jesus meets them on their own scriptural turf by citing Exodus. And what does that passage say? At the burning bush, God revealed himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not in the past tense, right? But in the present. But weren't they all dead by Exodus 3? So, what was God saying there, and what's Jesus saying here? They're saying that God is a God of covenant promise, that the patriarchs aren't dead but living, and that they grounded their hope in the age to come and the resurrection out of the dead. God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's saying, I currently am their God, and I currently have a relationship with them beyond the death of the mortal body. Do you see? For the promises of God to the patriarchs to come to pass, there must be a resurrection. God's word is not bound by human limitations, nor would God make a pledge to the living that would be terminated by death. Del Ralph Davis said of this verse, once Yahweh pledges himself to be God to you, that establishes a relationship that is eternal as the God who promised it. Once Yahweh binds himself to you to be your God, there is no circumstance, no opponents that can sever that relation. Even in death, he is still the God who holds you and at the right time will raise you to life. See, this isn't automatic. The idea that some share in the age to come means that some will not. 
And indeed, our sins have merited for us hell itself, which is, as you recall, is horrible because the presence of God is not there. Hell is hell because it's Christless, but that's what we've earned. But God, being full of grace and mercy, offers us the privilege of being sons of God and thus sons of the resurrection. And this comes through our repenting and giving our allegiance to the wrath-absorbing, death-conquering, resurrected Christ. And once those covenant ties are secured, nothing can separate us from God. Not even death itself. That's what Jesus is saying. Why? Because he's the God of the living for all to live to him and place their hopes in him and his promises. So the question is, do you qualify for heaven? We can only answer in the affirmative if we cease to trust in our own merit and trust in the merit of Jesus, the atoning, serpent-stomping, grave-conquering king. Have you done that? Because look, it doesn't matter what you conceive heaven to be unless you have done that. Because you'll only share in the age to come through your attachment to Jesus. So considered worthy here in this text is a divine passive, meaning considered worthy by God on the basis of being in relation to God as sons of God. And how do you obtain that? Through attachment to the only rightful son of God. Do you see? None of us can stroll up to the marriage supper of the Lamb on our own merits, by ourselves, into the presence of God. The only way we get in is through Jesus Christ. Let's illustrate it like this before we go to our last point. Imagine if one day when I was in high school, my mom was making dinner, okay, and a stranger was walking down the street in front of our house. He walks through the front door of our house, he opens it, he walks into the kitchen, he sits down at the table, and he says, what's for dinner? Okay. Even though my mom was fairly hospitable, this would freak her out, right? Would it freak you out? <laughs> Some fella just walked into your house and asked what's for dinner. She would ask, who are you? Why are you here? If you don't leave, I'm calling the cops, <laughs> right? That's a reasonable reaction, right? We don't know them. No one invited them. They don't belong there. They have no business at all being there. They're a stranger, but now let's change it up. Imagine if one day a stranger was walking down the street in front of our house, but they were walking next to me. And we walk in the house together, and I tell my mom, Mom, this is my friend. Can he stay for dinner? Her response would be completely different, wouldn't it? Completely different. She wouldn't freak out. She wouldn't threaten to call the cops. She would say, nice to meet you. Of course you can stay and have dinner with us. And she would get a, a plate and a cup and some food, and he would sit at the table like he was her son too. Why the difference? It's because the second time the stranger came in with her son. So why can't we qualify to be sons and daughters of the resurrection? Sons and daughters of God. Only by virtue of our identification with Jesus. He escorts us into the presence of God. But God thus does more than sit us at the table and treat us as sons and daughters. He adopts us officially into the family with all the privileges and perks of natural children. That's how we qualify, and that alone. And if you are attached to Jesus, if you are son of daughter or daughter of the resurrection, and if you do thus have resurrection hope in the age to come, how will you live? So this leads us to our fourth and final question. How do you live in light of the age to come? 
do you live in light of the age to come? The Sadducees don't because they don't believe there is one. But if we believe that the resurrection of Jesus points to and secured the new age in which we will be resurrected and dwell in the new heavens and new earth for eternity, then shouldn't that be where we place our hopes? Shouldn't we live in light of that fact? Like, let me, again, I know you're Baptist, you're very tired. It's like a sleeping bag in here, right? The rain is knocking on the roof and it's very soothing, okay? I get it. And you don't talk ever, okay? I need you to talk now, all right? And just one thing. Do you believe in the resurrection out of the dead? Do you believe that there is an age to come in which you will dwell with God in fullness? Okay, now here's the question, all right? Do you live in light of that fact? Because shouldn't every pain, you know, when you... You get older and you get up and and it hurts just to like get out of bed. You make that, right, when you stand up. Every pain, every sigh, every war, every emotional ache, every broken relationship, every sorrow, every tear, every injustice should remind us that things aren't the way they ought to be. And that should lead us, right? When you get out of bed and you make that goofy noise, and you think, I should go to the doctor, get this checked out. You know, the next thought you should have is, I can't wait for the age to come. This should lead us, all those bad things, war, pain, emotional ache, should lead us not into despair, but into hope, knowing that because of Jesus, everything will be made right. And as we like to say around here, every sad thing will come untrue. Joel Green said, the character of the future casts its shadow backward, impinging resolutely on the present. Knowing God's future changes everything, for it alienates those who share this hope from those who do not. It generates conflict around what has ultimate value, and it provides the foundation for appropriate response in the present, continued faithfulness, and especially joy. And shouldn't that be true of us who know the power of the resurrection? And doesn't that stress to us the importance of this doctrine? Now, because some might say, What's the, what, what difference does a silly little argument Jesus had with the Sadducees make? And some might say, what difference does doctrine make? Why does it matter if I know theology? Well, this is why. Unless you understand that the importance of the resurrection of Jesus, which leads to the age to come where everything will be made right, you will be someone who doesn't have hope beyond this world. See, I contend that there is a one-to-one correlation between those who are discontented, miserable grumblers and those who don't make much of the resurrection. There's conversely a one-to-one correlation between those who endure suffering and hardship well and those who make much of the age to come. Those who act as if there is no hope and are constantly navel-gazing and are moping and talking nothing but their bad circumstances and get their identity from their hardships are those who, as of yet, don't know the power of the resurrection and the glory that awaits those who are in Christ at the end of the age. 
they're hoping in something else, a reversal of fortune, a better relationship, a better break, more or better stuff, more approval, more love from people, more attention, more and more and more of the things that this world can give them rather than the world to come. Where do you ground your hope, dear ones? You know, many, many years ago, there's a team of mountain climbers. And they began this dangerous descent of one of the peaks in the Swiss Alps. And the first man in line, he lost his foothold and he slipped over the edge. And the next two men were dragged after him. But the experienced climbers above braced themselves and they stood firm to bear the shock. But when the rope ran its length, rather than bearing the weight, it snapped like a string. And horrified, the climbers saw their friends fall to their deaths on the glacier 4,000 feet below. For a half hour, the other three stayed immobilized with fear. And finally, they had the nerve to continue their perilous descent. And hours later, they arrived in this, this town that was right nearby to tell their sad story. And when the climbers examined the rope to find out why it failed, they were shocked. You know why? Because true alpine club rope has a red strand running through it. But this rope did not. It was a weak substitute. Listen, my friend. Every other hope besides the living hope of the resurrection of Christ is a dead hope. And it cannot bear your weight. Like a string, they will eventually snap. And if we are trusting them to hold us, we will ultimately perish. We not only will not see hope ever realized in this, because even if we get what we want, we will constantly go to the next thing to say, I hope about, but nothing in this world could bear the weight of our eternity, don't you see? And the way in which we live, our ethics, our priorities, how we treat and see people, how we see even ourselves will be driven by one age or the other, one world or the other by this world and its wonky ethics and values or by the world to come. And this will make all the difference in how you live. Don't you see why Jesus talks so much about money and possessions? Because he knows that the love of money and possessions and a greedy heart are signs that you're living for the wrong world and thus for the wrong age. And your hopes are misplaced to boot. You, you've heard the saying, haven't you? Someone is too heavenly minded. Will you finish it? To be any earthly good. Can I tell you why that's an awful, awful saying? Because if you're living in light of eternity, you'll be more earthly good than those who are earthly minded because you not only are living for a better country, but you'll hold on to all things of earth, even your own life, with a looser grip. You'll be more devoted to the kingdom of God than other people who are trying to live for this world while claiming to love the next. The more you realize that the things of earth that you try to fill yourself with, the things you are pursuing that you think will give you what, will give you, what you think you need, those are merely imperfect and unsolid shadows of what we will get our full, fill in in heaven, the more you will long for the next country. The world to come will make us whole. So why be so devoted to the shadows? What should we be living for? And won't living for the next age change everything about how we live in this one? 
I mean, we live in this life, this small life to get to what, 10, 20 years of retirement? Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we do? And so we're thinking about the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year, the next 10 years, 20 years. What about the next 10,000? You're going to live for 70 or 80 years on this life and you're going to be devoted to that? When you believe in the resurrection, you'll be alive in a trillion? Which age should you live for? Our hopes are too small. C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. If I find in myself, he said, a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. Let me, let me give you this illustration that Lewis gives, and then we'll land this thing, all right? Lewis illustrated what he just said in this character he had in the Chronicles of Narnia. His name was Reepicheep. You guys remember Reepicheep? <laughs> He's a mouse, right? And this little mouse has only one destination in mind, and that's Aslan's country, who, of course, is the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. That's the only place he wants to go. Now, every other character has something they want or somewhere they want to go, but Reepicheep just wants to be with Aslan. That's all he wants. He doesn't care about riches or power. He just wants Aslan. And his goal of getting to Aslan's country causes him to live differently than those around him. From how he treats people to how he views the world. Nothing will stop him for either living for the next world or from reaching it. And at one point he says, my own plans are made. While I can, I sail east in the Don Treader, which is a ship. When she fails me, I will paddle east in my coracle. When she sinks, I'll swim east with my forepaws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world in some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. And here in this work of fiction, Lewis shows us what Jesus is saying in our text. Lewis even says in one of his very own letters that anyone in our world who devotes his whole life to seeking heaven will be like Reepicheep. My friend, what world are you living for? Sadducees had nothing to live for, and it showed. You died, and that was that. That's what they thought. What you did in this life, it didn't matter. But Jesus says there is a resurrection. And he shows it in a week's time by kicking the grave door open, doesn't he? Do you, my friend, live in light of that truth? Shouldn't you? How would your life look different if you did? 